here's an uncanny thought for you to consider. You don't like liquid transistors, that's fine. I was kind of close, but I was kind of not there. I didn't really understand what I was viewing when I, w when I received it, and I think that was the problem. We use liquid to condition the electrodes, particularly the aluminum, actually, to put it mildly. It's the only one we condition. But I think it's best we condition it in the presence of the electrodes that are going to be there. So um, the copper transistor has its two copper leads and its aluminum lead, and the iron transistor has its two iron leads and its aluminum lead and they're conditioned with baking soda or borax water solution. But then once the aluminum develops, aluminum oxide, alumina, coating its surface, the water's drained, possibly rinsed uh, with distilled water, but you know nothing that would abrade the aluminum oxide coating and remove it. Everything's nicely dried, and then we fill refill that transistor with a dielectric material. Now in the days of um, Nikola Tesla, according to Mark McKay, it was popular to use a certain recipe which was actually in evidence. It was quite popular um, across the board. I mean, everybody used it. They just had their own recipe of proportionality among the, its three ingredients. And the interesting thing about this recipe is that it's n not only a dielectric, but it's an electret as well, interestingly enough. And it's made up of carnauba wax as its third and minor ingredient. In the case of Nikola Tesla, I think it was 5%, according to Mark McKay. And the remainder uh, of the Tesla recipe is 50-50 blend of pine rosin and beeswax. Now, if that's poured into the transistor um, vessel, let's say it's glass, I don't know, cardboard, <laughs> it's something to form the vessel um, and allowed to solidify, it's interesting, it would be an electret as well as a dielectric, which means... This darn thing doesn't need a kickstart because you've stored it when you make it. You put an electrostatic charge on the darn thing when you pour the dielectric in there, slash electret, you let it solidify under the influence of uh, an electrostatic force, and then you remove the influence of the electrostatic force. And so, in a, again, we're conditioning the dielectric to... Um, possess an, uh, a, a um, an electrostatic force and um, it will hold on to it, I guess, and keep it. Um, and this is interesting because it, it kind of is similar to my guess estimation that how you create a DC transformer that can pass DC is that you create a core or you manage a core in such a way that it does not lose the DC that it is attempting to pass. And you do that by charging it up with a DC force, an electrostatic force. Because, you know, the funny thing about 
transformers is that they are electrostatic in nature. I mean, we literally force voltage across the core, even though the core is magnetizable iron, let's say, or it may not be, it may be an air core, but we are literally using the core as an electrostatic transfer media or medium um, to do, to transfer so uh, not energy so much as a force, a singular force, a singular ingredient of electricity across the core space. So um, the iron core of a transformer is still a dielectric space, basically, except it has the additional feature of uh, iron. But that's in addition. See, so I think that's what we're missing. Because I've gone through this before, a few years ago, that whatever we think is happening in a particular component, the opposite is actually happening. So in a capacitor, it's current that actually gets transferred between the plates across the uh, resistor. And I know that sounds bizarre, but I don't remember the logic I had for that. Uh, but I do remember the one for the uh, transformer, because that was the first one I covered. I did a video, and I don't even know where, it, where I put it. If it was on one of my channels that got deleted off of YouTube, or if I put it on Vimeo, and it retained there. But yeah, I didn't do podcasts in those days because I didn't know about Podbean, so I just my podcast was a video monologue, basically, um, that I might do in the middle of the night, and you see blackness and you hear my voice, disembodied voice. Um, but with transformers, um, we assume the iron is magnetic, but it's a voltage that gets transferred between the coils, and that makes sense to me because the coils are copper. Of course, it's going to be voltage. I know that now. <laughs> I didn't think of that then um, because they favor electrostatic force. They don't favor iron. So uh, the uh, ferromagnetism of iron, um, and that's assuming an iron core. But regardless, they still transfer voltage. Oh, God. Um, maybe the thing was that um, capacitors don't transfer voltage. They store it. Yeah, but then why would I... I think the opposite was the case with current. Well, they call it displacement current. I think that was the thing. Um, which is a funny way to call the storage of voltage. Yeah, it is a funny, it's a roundabout way of um, saying stored voltage is displacement current. While with um, a transformer, you don't store voltage, you transfer it. And so then taking that further, we would have to say that it's a DC voltage that cannot be transferred across a practical transformer, but only because we don't store DC voltage in the core space in the center of the coil. Now that's bizarre, but it means we're creating a point in space in the center of the core that is the terminus for an electrostatic line of force, according to Eric, um, in which the magnetic field goes around that point in the coil, which it does. So we're doing things in a roundabout fashion. Instead of starting with a point that is the terminus of an electrostatic line of force 
and thus then creating a magnetic field surrounding it in orbit around it. Instead, we do it the other way around. We start the magnetic field uh, via the coils, and then that creates an electrostatic terminus at the center of the coil. Now that I never thought of before. <laughs> Until this instant, that sounds pretty cool. See, sometimes I come up with things as I talk, so whatever. Um, so let's see. So voltage does get transferred, interestingly enough, because the two coils are wound together, together right? Uh, the primary, secondary, whatever you want to call it. In my circuits, there's no distinction between primary and secondary. <laughs> it's impossible. It simply goes back and forth, like an echo chamber. Um, let's see. So what was the point of this <laughs> recording? Oh, so we fill the transistor with a dielectric material that just happens to be electret. Well, see, I didn't envision that before I started the recording. I thought, okay, why not liquid glass? Molten glass. It's a glass vesicle, or, <laughs> excuse me, I love the word vesicle. I, I should look it up so I know what I'm talking about. A glass vessel. Glass is my favorite material for dielectric incapacitors. And that I received during meditation 10 years ago or 9 years ago. But, um, you know, Tesla had his favorites, mica or whatever. Um, so we fill the interior space with the dielectric after we've conditioned the electrodes. And now we have a capacitor functioning as a transistor, but with a voltage charge that it's capable of retaining, which is not something I'd considered before. Um, it's a little bizarre, to put it mildly, um, because now we have that voltage to act as resistance, so to speak, because we have to change its state. If it has one state, and it's varying over time, ooh, isn't that uh, what current is? <laughs> And, yeah, it's providing resistance to form that change of voltage state over time. That is the definition of current within a framework of time. The energetic version of the definition of current rather than the watts or power version, according to Ohm's law. My version of Ohm's law, <laughs> which no longer is Ohm's law. It becomes Joule's. It becomes uh, Joule's law. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Except it's not Ohm's resistance, it's, um, it's inductive reactance, capacitive reactance, and Ohm's resist, all, you know, all three. Well, it, yeah, it's a different version of Ohm's law, basically. Whatever. <laughs> the only one that's uh, valid, the, uh, the other one taught in school is rubbish. Uh, you know, current times voltage equals uh, watts, that's rubbish. Um, no, it's voltage applied times voltage reactant, or resultant if you prefer, but it is reactant, divided by various impedances, two of them in number, and resistance within a framework of time or over time, giving us not watts but joules. Um, let's see. So this is getting very interesting. Um... Because it's kind of like a transformer, because the electrodes are acting like coils. They have inductance. 
I know that for a fact because the microcap macro for a neon bulb assigns a very teeny-weeny um, quantity of inductance to the electrodes of the neon bulb. So I know it's there <laughs> on the plates of a capacitor. And that's what these transistors are doing. So they're... And it's not surprising because the borax, baking soda, or whatever diode concept does get utilized in our electrolytic uh, capacitor, uh, capacitors. It's in there. They actually put it. They got aluminum, and it's got aluminum oxide, and it's uh, got... Um, I forget what they use instead of borax, but they, they actually have um, a layer against there that's... Um, it's diodic. It's very interesting how they formulate it or construct it, if you prefer. Um, so it's just a question of the nature of the leads. And so that's why we still have to use trimetal because we have to distinguish the characteristic of the leads. The behavior of the leads have to be distinct from each other and they have to be the three types of magnetism, paramagnetism for the aluminum, ferromagnetism for the iron, and diamagnetism for the copper. Um, because it's the copper that's going to be reactive and uh, the aluminum is going to expel. It's going to, or according to William Lyne, quoting Dort Jr., it's going to uh, reflect, but... Um, it's going to expel anything given to it, which is really the definition of reflective when you think about it. So I guess reflective is the, the word, but I prefer to say expel. <laughs> I, yeah, I prefer expel. <laughs> um, and then what was the other one? Oh yeah, the iron is ferromagnetic, so, and that's the true magnetic, not the, um, um, not the vague definition of, of magnetism, which is any kind of conductor, which is a valid definition, but it's interesting that Dort says it that way because I'm promoting here that the dielectric force, the electrostatic force is converted into magnetism by the iron and cannot be by the copper. The copper is incapable of doing the conversion. And you end up, I guess, with a lot of voltage and not a whole lot of current if a copper line, transmission line, should receive Sierra Le Mans, um transmission. And, it, and that's perfect medium for transmission because copper carries voltage without a hitch. No dissipation over distance, except in his case, 10 miles distance. That's still pretty good. You know, when you consider the logic and the genius behind this system of his, it's it's remarkable. That's why I don't think he came up with it. I think, no, no, it can't be. No, no, no. must have been Tesla. <laughs> he just got it from Tesla, and it wasn't as good as uh, Tesla's version because Tesla didn't give away all his secrets in his patent. That's why I think Cyril Lamont read a patent, because it just makes logical sense that Tesla was prompted by Cyril Lamont to come out with his version and uh, build it because I think he had the patent patented, and then he didn't go ahead and build it. He uh, got distracted or whatever. I mean, at that point in his life, he wasn't commercially viable anyway. He was obstructed every chance he got, so he may have just patented it and then left it alone. Um, and Cyril Lamont acted as motivating factor to get him off of his spot, 
and it never reached commercial market, but it reached us in the form of a fable that nobody believes is true, all because Peter Savo is the one relaying the story to us, hiding the fact that Tesla did the lying, not Peter, he just carried the lie to us. Um, anyway, covered that in the prior recording. Okay, so now this is getting to be very interesting. Um, it still leaves in doubt that little gizmo that branches off the aluminum trunk line because of its because it still has so many different variations to it, it creates confusion in my mind as to is that really what it is, you know? Is that really what's going on in there? But it makes sense though that something that transmits the dialectic force has to be connected or associated with the iron trunk line in order to create a dialogue with the iron coil which connects back to it, a, a, a magnetic coupling dialogue that goes one way and then the loop comes back through um, the electrical connection lo uh, line so that um, we get some circulation and retention of both forces, the um, magnetic and the dielectric. And the copper side is basically acts as a switch with two, like a mechanical relay with two contacts um, because it does have capacitance, it's got the laden jar and it's got its transistor of its own with copper leads instead of iron, pair a pair of leads um, and then it's got the proto pre-ionizing or pre-arcing ionizing gases oh Oh, of the space between the um, copper spheres, which is atmosphere. It's not a noble gas. So that's... Okay. So the transistor is not filled with a noble gas. It's filled with a dielectric material. The Leyden jar is a Leyden jar. However Leyden jars are built, you build them. But the... Um, what I had in my diagram in the prior uh, video recording, I assumed a, a noble gas in the um, spark gap tube, where the, uh, representing the space between the copper spheres. Uh-uh, that would be air. Because it has to be a very high voltage breakdown so that it won't break down. Above the voltage level of the operating voltage, way above the operating voltage of the device, because you don't do not want it to arc or turn into a plasma. You want it to stay in merely an ionizing state because that's what coordinates the switching action that is parametric in nature that causes the amplification of power um, in things that are conductive, such as the iron barrel coil. Um, in particular, but also in all the other conductive pathways of the circuit for that matter. Anything with uh, inductance, which basically anything conductive, uh, the plates of the various capacitances or capacitors or transistors. <laughs> this now, it looks interesting. Okay, so that still leaves the two tubes in the center associated with the aluminum trunk line. Um, 
they're the only ones that contain the noble gas that is breaking down, that has a, a, a lowered, a, a voltage breakdown that's lower than the operating voltage of the device, so that they, you, it ensures that they break down. So that means the electret is charged. That's where you put the charge, not on the Leyden jar. You put the electret charge, you put the charge intended to break down the noble gas in um, the tubular solid-state version of the Kit Carson electrostatic rotary device, you know, the double tubes, the figure-eight glass, um, you put the charge in the electret, not in the capacitor. That way, there's no way to bleed it out. So there's no way to turn the damn thing off. It's always on. And thus, it's able, you're able to claim, oh, it comes from the atmosphere, it's cosmic. <laughs> it generates because of the cosmos. Oh, that's nice. It's very poetic. Poetic license is what it is. <laughs> it's not very accurate. But why would an inventor want to be a scientist like Tesla, like um, Steinmetz? Why would he? Why would he be like anybody other than Tesla and keep the secret to himself, Mister Amman? Why not? That's of course what he would do. He'd take poetic license. He wouldn't try to be accurate. So we have to think in the context of his mindset to be able to figure out what he was doing. We can't use our mindset and just expect them to lay it out on a silver platter, so to speak, for us. He's, they're not going to do that. we got to do the hard homework and backtrack and back-engineer what their lies because all of the inventors lie. They have to. That's their job. They're paid to do that. That's, <laughs> Or they garner royalties as a consequence, let's say. <laughs> let's put it that way, of, of doing that. Steinmetz uh, didn't because he was employed by General Electric to break the uh, Tesla patents or whoever else employed him. So he, he got his paycheck. He didn't have to worry. He, well, he, he, and nor did he think in terms of royalties and making millions and uh, doing research like uh, Tesla. You know, research is very expensive. And so Sierra Lamont had money to begin with. He didn't have to worry about where his money came from, but still he thought that way. In terms of money, he grew up with it. Okay, he grew up wealthy. Thank you, uh, Aaron, for that insight. So he had the same thinking that Tesla had. Same thinking. I want to get a profit at the end of the day when I get done with this. Not Steinmetz. Steinmetz didn't think that way, and that's and nor does Eric. Eric is what a C three O five three C O one whatever it's called a charitable donation of whatever CC. It's really those kinds of people who, t from whom we get the knowledge from, not people like Amon or Tesla. Quite the opposite. Amon and Tesla are the ones with the mysteries that we, we are trying to solve, but we're not going to get it on a silver platter from them. It's not going to happen. So we have to think with that mindset that they lie as part of their job description. They have to. Don't think they're going to tell the truth and not lie uh, from time to time to mislead us. And the Cosmic Atmospheric Generator uh, title for Amon's device was constructed, that title was fashioned by Amon for the express purpose of misleading us, misguiding us. So we have to be very careful. Um, but I did mention the atmosphere between the copper spheres is the atmosphere that he was referring to. I did it for that reason, that he's lying. You know, he's mis... 
you know, like a ventriloquist or a magician, always tries to guide our attention away from where the action is happening. Do not look at the man behind the curtain. Now, doesn't that sound like something else I've mentioned before? How physics, which has become politicized, has engineered electrical engineering as a social engineering event to get the student of electrical engineering to be misguided as well as misinformed as to what goes on in his within the domain of his own subject to hide the secrets that are kept by somebody else who has the secrets. Usually it's... Uh, the Department of Defense, but it could just as easily be uh, the banking establishment doesn't, uh, because they have something similar. Uh, really, it, they have a free energy device. It's called a printing press. <laughs> uh, well, proverbial printing, plas printing press. It's actually called other things like a traffic ticket or a mortgage on a home, but uh, be that as it may, um, for creating free energy of the uh, monetary type. Okay, so now this starts to look more better. Um, all right, little by little, gradually, incrementally, stepwise by stepwise, it starts to make sense, and that's important, that progress, evolutionary progress is, is being made because it's, um, it's an evolutionary dialogue of development. It's not all at once the whole picture, even though it may have, well... Yeah, no. Uh, we should all be so lucky, right? That's a Tesla way of uh, receiving insight. All at once, the whole shebang. <laughs> but us, we have to evolve our way into it. All right. 